Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. Uh, In today's program, we are continuing in our exploration of seven sets of prophetic terms that I believe are important to understand. We want to compare them and we want to contrast them so that we properly understand from a biblical perspective how these seven sets of terms are used in the Bible. And as we go through the overview that we're going to do in our next teaching series that will follow this one, as we look at the seven chronologically sequenced prophetic events that are going to take place uh, to the best of my study of the Bible, between now and eternity, which we find in the last uh, chapter of the last book of the Bible, following the great white throne judgment, when sin and death are thrown into the lake of fire, therefore there's no more sin, there's no more death, no more tears, and so forth. So that's back to eternity again. So we're studying these uh, prophetic terms because I think it's important that we get a grasp of them and how they're used in the Bible uh, so that we have a clearer perspective when we go through those prophetic events about who's talking to whom about what and what circumstances, because it's very easy to be misled, to misunderstand uh, the importance of some of these prophetic events if we don't get these terms right in our minds. So we're going through these, and we're actually towards the beginning of this, so if you're joining us for the first time, you haven't missed a great deal. Uh, We've had a lot of scriptures in point number one, which is comparing and contrasting the Son of God term with the Son of Man term. And you say, well, they're one and the same. And in some aspects, you are right. It is referring to Jesus, whether you use one or the other. Um, They're both coming as a thief, as it were. But uh, the term thief, we need to understand the context of thief whether that means it's at a time when you're not expecting, which would be like the rapture, or is it a time when he's coming to judge and actually to destroy through judgment? And that's the one we really need to have a good understanding of. But the word, the term Son of God and Son of Man are used in such a distinctive way as Jesus spoke, as the apostles used it, uh, even as the unbelieving Pharisees used it. Uh, to understand how it's used by those different groups can really open your eyes to the importance um, of what we're supposed to learn from these particular passages. So hopefully you're beginning to see that because now as we've been setting the the background, and by the way, if you're new to the program, we're referring to a worksheet that's available at the radio station that the announcer mentioned at the beginning, the introduction to the program that you can get here at the uh, the radio station, and by downloading it, you can follow along so you won't uh, forget or miss uh, the many scriptures that we're using here. And you may even have more scriptures 
that you might want to share with the radio audience, just contact me at steve at whcbradio.org, and I'd be glad to share over the air uh, what you have um, to share with us so that we can have a sense of family here as we're growing and learning together uh, the wonderful goodness uh, of God's Word as we grow in wisdom through a study of His Word. So we've been looking at the the use of the term Son of God in the four Gospels just to kind of get an overview of how important that term Son of God is and actually uh, why it applies to Jesus. So we've looked at Luke chapter 1, we looked at Mark chapter 1, we looked at Matthew 27 to actually see what the centurion, an unbelieving Roman soldier, an officer, uh, thought when he saw the circumstances and the results of the crucifixion of Christ, and he said, this must truly be the Son of God. Uh, and we talked about how it just would would lose the significance if he, the Roman officer had said, this truly must be the Son of Man, <laughs> that it's God that brought this about because he is the Son of God, and that's the what we need to understand in that particular passage. And we see it again in John as we went to the fourth of the four Gospels in John chapter 1 and looked at the first three verses that talked about in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then we find out in verse 14 that that Word uh, referred in those three, three verses as He and Him is Jesus, that Jesus is the Word, that Jesus was there in the beginning, that Jesus is God. But he manifested himself to us as the Son of God so that we could directly relate with him. And then uh, we went on to um, John chapter 1 to look at how uh, Nathaniel was identified by Christ through Philip and how Christ related to Nathaniel and saying that, Nathaniel, I saw you, as it says, and again, we're in John chapter 1, and we're looking at the verses uh, 45 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 51. And he says, um, um, in verse 48, he says, when, I, when you were under the fig tree, and that's, a, a, that's a, a, a Jewish term, and it basically was about your business. You were by yourself, you were about your business, and you were doing it without any threats or anything. So it's a comfortable type setting under your fig tree. And Jesus is saying, I saw you there. And, and Nathaniel's saying, wait a minute, there's nobody around me. How could you possibly see me except the fact that you are, and he just identifies him in verse 49 as the son of God, you are the king of Israel. But I want to take just a few minutes here, and I alluded to this at the end of our last program, where he is down in verse 51 saying to Nathanael, he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you, Nathanael, will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And there's a lot packed in here, and a good portion of it is by inference. If you understand some Old Testament history and what Jesus is trying to get across here, because Jesus is in the very beginning of his ministry as he interacts with the early calling of his disciples. And we talked about a disciple as a student uh, who figuratively and literally sits at the feet of the teacher. And of course, he's referred to in verse 49 here as rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. And these are students that he's calling, that Jesus is calling. And once he's called them for a period of time, we see in, uh, for instance, Matthew chapter 10 at the beginning, 
he prays to God the Father, and and uh, through that prayer, he takes his disciples and selects 12 of them and makes them messengers. So the students who have been receiving the word from Jesus are now going to take that word and take it out to Israel as messengers. Well, the word for messenger is apostle. So we have the 12 apostles that are disciples. Not all not all disciples are apostles, but all apostles were disciples. So I hope you understand the difference there. So he's he's basically saying here that Nathaniel, you're going to see great things as you travel with me as one as, as one of my close confidants along with Philip and the others that are being introduced as we go through these passages right here particularly the 12 apostles, but you're going to see these great things. I'm introducing myself to you, and I'm introducing myself to Israel. So you're going to see the heavens opened up, and you're going to see the glory of God come because I'm here, and I'm being introduced to Israel. And he's relating in verse 51, and this is the point I was leaving you with last time that I want to uh, clarify here, is He's referring back to Genesis chapter 28, and this is when God really first revealed himself in a powerful way to Israel, which is Jacob. Jacob uh, was the name he was given by his father Isaac, Isaac being the son of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. But he did this after he dealt with an impetuous Jacob. Jacob was a difficult person. He had a strong personality, and he was somewhat known as a deceiver, if you will, and that's why I want to use this word because it's to um, be raised up here in in, in opposition to, to verse 47 in John chapter 1 where Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So he's making a distinction here for a purpose. He's relating it back to Jacob. Because remember Jacob and Esau. Uh, In the birth order, Esau came out first. So therefore Esau received the double blessing of the firstborn son. And of course we know that Jacob fooled him out of that in, in later life when he contrived a story through his mother to fool his father Isaac into giving the the real blessing to Jacob as opposed to Esau. And of course, that was part of a godly plan anyway, and I don't want to get into the details of that. But nevertheless, Jacob was a hard-headed, difficult person, also re- referred to and known as somewhat of a deceiver. So he's making the distinction here that when he went to Bethel, as we learn in Genesis chapter 28 in that account, that he saw the ladder going up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. They refer to it as Jacob's ladder, the account of Jacob's ladder. And then he struggles, he wrestles with an angel of the Lord, and it may be the angel of the Lord that we're talking about. So it is at this point in Jacob's life that he finds God and becomes a true follower, a true disciple, if you will, of God, as is Nathaniel here. So Nathaniel and Jacob are kind of being compared here 
but to the difference being that Jacob was somewhat of a deceitful person, and Jesus specifically refers to Nathaniel as an Israelite indeed. In other words, there's no doubt about it. He is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And therefore he, like Jacob, would see the angels of God ascending and descending. And it's more of a figure of speech here, I believe, in verse 51 of John 1, where Jesus is really telling Nathaniel, you're going to see great and amazing things as one of my apostles. But then I want to also point out that he refers to himself here as the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember back in 49, Nathaniel has identified Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is now referring to himself as the Son of Man. Why would he do that? Well, the point is, who's, what subject is in view here? What is he referring to? He's talking about his ministry to Israel And his ministry to Israel will be a difficult one because Israel refuses to accept him, refuses to identify him as the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the promised King of Israel, because he didn't immediately come in as a tough guy, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, and come in there and just kick everybody out of town and and establish his kingdom right away. He didn't come in that way. He came in as the suffering servant, as the Lamb of God, and therefore they refused to accept him that way. So Israel, while they see all these wonderful miracles that Jesus is going to perform, has performed and will perform throughout his ministry until his death, burial, and resurrection, they're going to see him as the Son of Man. They're going to see him as the son of Joseph of uh, Nazareth and, and the wife Mary. So that's the distinction I want to show you here, because it's a a good example, I think, of what I'm trying to get across in the difference in the uses of the term, the Son of God, Son of Man. The believer, Nathaniel, sees Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the union of Mary with the Holy Spirit of God. Man was not involved. Whereas Israel, during the life of Christ in his ministry, that three-and-a-half-year ministry, will never see him uh, as a people group, if you will, will never see him as the son of God. They will see him as the son of a man. So he refers to himself here as the son of man because he's referring to how uh, Israel is going to see him and accept him even though the angels of God are ascending and descending on him uh, as they see at, the, at uh, for instance, um, the Jordan when Jesus starts his ministry, the angel of, of God comes down and they hear the voice of God saying, this is my son in whom we, uh, I am well pleased. Um, the apostles see him transfigured at the Mount of Transfiguration along with Moses and Elijah. Now those are the apostles and they have, as Peter accounts in his, his epistle, uh, this makes the written word, the prophecies of the Bible even more sure because we've seen it with our very eyes, but Israel will not believe these accounts when the apostles relate them to them. They still see him as the son of man. So Jesus, because he's referring to unbelieving Israel, refers to himself descriptively as the son of man. Hopefully you can see that, uh, and we're going to build on that in a big way as we go forward here with these other scriptures, both um, 
on the column dealing with Son of God and even more so with Son of Man to show you the distinction. The righteous see him as the Son of God. The unrighteous see him as the Son of Man. So when people are talking or he's being talked about, you can understand more clearly what's going on if you see which term is being used to describe him. So let's move on and get into some really, really rich scriptures here in 1 John as we deal um, not with just the description, but the overall essence of the Son of God and what that means to us as believers. So we do that by turning to the um, second set of writings of John. John wrote the book of John, the gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he also wrote Revelation. So he is, uh, compared to Paul, he is the second most prolific writer of the New Testament. And I, we get so caught up with all the writings of Paul who wrote just about half of all the books of the New Testament. In fact, I think he's the I personally think he's the author of Hebrews, and that would make him the writer of half the books of the New Testament. But regardless, he's a prolific writer, and, and praise the Lord for him because he's brought us a lot of the mysteries to light and given us the truth of those mysteries uh, through the gospel that was given to him. Uh, but so is John. So is John. So we go to the first uh, John, uh, John, uh, first John. Uh, and we'll get into Second John as well as something that maybe a lot of you are not aware of, and I want to share with you. We'll do that um, here in the next program or two. But we're in First John chapter three right now. First John chapter three, and we want to look at verses seven and eight. First John chapter three, verses seven and eight, and this shows the the love that God has uh, through the Holy Spirit through the writer John to us. Look how he refers. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. Little children. Little, he's referring to us. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. And we've just been talking about deceitfulness with Jacob and the lack of deceitfulness with Nathaniel, haven't we? So here we go with a point. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he, referring to Jesus, just as he is righteous. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And again, as we've done before, Look at how this would change if you said the Son of Man appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, the Son of God and Son of Man are the same person, but they are manifested in different ways. I firmly believe that, and that's why I'm trying to go through these scriptures and show you that, that while it's the same person, Jesus Christ, here he is the Son of God, and that's what a righteous person would see him as. The people who practice sin would see him as the son of man, the son of Joseph. Nothing to do with deity, just a good man. But here we see that those who practice sin um, are of the devil, and the son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. 
So we're going to continue in 1 John, and we're going to go to chapter 4 in our next uh, program. Um, so John, 1 John chapter 4, and you can look at verse 15 if you like in preparation for that um, program. But now we're going to transition over to our Q&A portion that we do at every program, and we've been going through a question that dealt with the Holy Spirit and the point that uh, Rich brought up from Indian Springs, and then we've turned into kind of a, a mini teaching series, is uh, he wanted to know if the Holy Spirit, the restrainer of evil that's described in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is taken out of the way at the beginning of the tribulation, then if there's no Holy Spirit on the earth, how can the tribulation saints described in Revelation 20 verse 4 be saved? And it's a good good point, good question. And we're just taking a little bit of time to answer this. Uh, they are saved because the Holy Spirit is there, and we want to explain that. But I thought it was a good opportunity for us to look at how gracious God is that even though man has separated himself from communion with God directly because of the fall in the garden, because of man's sin nature, therefore the direct relationship between created man and God the Father is restricted because God cannot be in the presence of sin. We want to see how God does interact, and we, we automatically think, well, it's the Holy Spirit, and yes, you would be correct. Well, it's through Jesus. Yes, you would be correct. Well, it's through uh, the angel of the Lord, and you would be correct. But we just wanted to go through and look at all of those you would be correct points, if you will, to see how this gracious God interacts with fallen sinful man during this period of time that will culminate with the great white throne judgment in the beginning of eternity when sin is no longer around, it's been thrown into the lake of fire, therefore there's no death, and that God the Father will once again directly interact with man. So that's going to be a wonderful time to look forward to. But in the meantime, God interacts with us uh, through his word and through um, the different manifestations of God, that being uh God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And we've been looking at how God the Son has been interacting in the Old Testament. Yes, God the Son in the Old Testament through what through uh, what is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And we saw the angel of the Lord in several examples. We saw it with Abram in Genesis 18. We, we saw it through the um, angel of the Lord interacting with Balaam in um, Numbers chapter 22. We saw the angel of the Lord interacting with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in that burning bush as he gave instructions to Moses and how he was going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And then we wanted to look at one more example of this. There's many examples in the Old Testament of the angel of the Lord uh, talking. Uh, it'll say the Lord spoke or God spoke. Or then it'll say the angel Lord. They're all the same as we found out just looking at um, the burning bush as an example. Or looking at uh, Numbers 22 where we clearly showed that God and the angel of the Lord were one and the same. So we want to do it one more time because I found it was interesting. And it's just another manifestation of how the angel of the Lord showed himself to man. And that was in Joshua. So you have the five books that begin the Old Testament, 
Matthew, uh, rather, um, starting with Genesis, and it's called the Pentateuch, the five books that um, Moses wrote, and that ends with Deuteronomy. And, of course, Moses dies just as the Israelites are getting ready to cross the Jordan into the Promised Land, and he passes the mantle of leadership to Joshua, the son of Nun. So it's to Joshua. So we want to go to the book of Joshua, and we want to go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, Joshua has led the Israelites across the Jordan as Moses had led them across the Red Sea 40 years before. So this was another miracle of the parting of the waters of the Jordan. So he brings them across, and the first group of people are getting ready to be uh, encountered. And on his way to encounter these people, he meets somebody special. And this is Joshua chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 13, 14, and 15. So if you would read in Joshua chapter 5 with me. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Verse 14, he said, No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound exactly like the burning bush that we read about with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and how the burning bush, the the entity that was speaking, was God, but he was identified as the angel of the Lord? And here, the angel of the Lord is referred to as the captain of the host of the Lord. So again, in somewhat of a military uh, view, if you will, we're seeing the pre-incarnate Christ again revealed to mankind on behalf of God, giving him direction and telling him that you're on holy ground because I am um, basically God in the form of pre-incarnate Christ coming to you in the sinful world and interacting directly with you. I mean, how wonderful is that, that God is that gracious, that he goes out of his way. And of course, in each of these instances, the individual comes to them as a human form, somebody that they're not fearful of, somebody, well, they are fearful once they understand that it's God, but in the sense of it's not a monster, it's not some wild animal or something crazy, It's a human being that they can identify with. God is that gracious in the Old Testament dealing with fallen man to be able to do it in such a, if you will, an up-close and personal way. Okay, so that's how the second component of the Godhead dealt in the Old Testament, because obviously we're going to be, you then talk about Jesus coming in the New Testament, and that's what uh, Hebrews one chapter one and two that we talked about uh, in prior program 
um, was talking about when he said that he talked, he communicated through the prophets and so forth in the Old Testament, and today it's through Jesus and then through the Holy Spirit. So we'll talk about that in detail as we go forward in answering this question from Rich in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.